We live in a world where the news is at our fingertips, where we're one click or swipe away from the latest headlines. But how often do we stop swiping and scrolling and just listen? It's the difference between knowing what's in the headlines and understanding how it got there. I'm Malika Bilal, and this is The Take, Al Jazeera's daily news podcast, where we bring you the context and the people behind the global stories that matter. Subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Today's episode of Commons is brought to you by All We Leave Behind, the new book from Carol Off. It's a reporter's journey into the lives of others, published by Random House Canada and on bookstore shelves now. This episode of Commons is also brought to you by Tree Canada. Ashley and Hadia, did you know that September 27th is National Tree Day? Did you know that? No. Go trees. Trees are great. And National Tree Day is September 27th. And and Tree Canada, Canada's leading tree planting charity, is hoping to plant 10,000 trees on that day. So listeners of Commons can win a trip to Banff just by going to nationaltreeday.ca slash Canada land and entering the National Tree Day contest. This includes airfare, ground transport between Calgary and Banff, and a stay in the world-famous Fairmont Banff Springs Hotel. So again, just go to nationaltreeday.ca slash Canada land for your chance to win. So we wanted to have all four NDP leadership candidates together on one episode, or maybe two each on two separate episodes, but trying to coordinate the schedules of four very busy candidates while they're crisscrossing the country, trying to shore up support, is worse than herding cats. Or, you know, any other progressive, lean-to-the-left furry mammals. (laughs) But we got to sit down with Guy Caron last episode, and if you haven't checked it out, make sure to go back and download it. This week, all jammed together on one action-packed episode, we talk with all of the other candidates, Charlie Angus, Nikki Ashton, and Jagmeet Singh. And we talk to them about environmental issues, indigenous relations, about fixing the economy for the younger generations, and the working class. And we also talk to them about building support in Quebec, which turned out to be a major topic of discussion. And Nikki explains why she thinks Canada needs to nationalize part of the banking sector. Charlie makes a pitch for an urban renewal plan. And Jugmeet talks about how he'd reform the justice system if given a chance. The online voting on the first ballot closes October 1st, and only one, or possibly three, will be left standing. More on that in a bit. I'm Ashley Chinati. I'm Hadia Rodrigue. And I'm Ryan McMahon. From Canada Land, this is Commons. fact is, is that the bill for Canada's cultural genocide has come due. It cannot be talked away. It cannot be done incrementally. That bill has come due, and it's come due with this young generation of Indigenous youth. Uh, you know, folks are uh, are getting on board with this e- idea that we need to make education far more affordable, and of course what we're saying is it should be tuition-free. Uh, I think I was thinking too much like a lawyer, and I was invited to speak as a, as a previous lawyer. And that was a mistake. Welcome back to Dipper Fest. Uh, We're going to jump into this in just a minute. First, though, just a quick note. We're skipping Is This a Thing? and some of our usual segments this episode in order to get as much time as possible with Ashton, Singh, and Angus. We've got some good suggestions, though, that we'll be using on future episodes. As always, you can ask if things are things by emailing us at commons at canadalandshow.com. Okay, so we've been bouncing in and out of the studio for days now, getting these three interviews recorded. We've had to schedule and reschedule times, work with the communications teams of each candidate and with producers across the country. In the end, though, it all came together. Thank goodness. (laughs) So what did you guys think of the interviews overall? Everyone's very polished. I think they've had so many debates at this point. They're all like really hardened into their talking points. Um, I think the thing that struck me the most is uh, how how polished uh, Jugmeet is and how much of like a centrist candidate he sounds like he's ready to be on the federal stage after being a provincial politician for so long. 
And with uh, of the ones that I sat in on, I found uh, Nikki Ashton sort of the most free flowing. Like she has these really big, grand, super progressive ideas that. Uh, are the kind of thing that until very recently weren't considered very viable right. in Western politics. But as she loves to cite, you know, Bernie Sanders and Jeremy Corbyn seem to give her a bit of hope. But last time I checked, neither of them have actually won anything yet. So, yes. One of the things that I noticed with all of these interviews in, in terms of these grand, large ideas that, that most of these candidates carry is that there's actually not a lot of substance inside of those large grand ideas. You know, how we're going to pay for these land large grand ideas, comparing the movement to Bernie Sanders and Jeremy Corbyn to the movement up here in Canada is interesting, except as Ashley just said, they both lost the elections they were in. And so I guess I'm just interested in seeing how it plays out because there's so much at stake here. And I think that's one of the issues that people have with the NDP, or at least when they're choosing between the NDP and the and the liberals as their party on the left, is that grand ideas are amazing. And yes, it'd be awesome if no one had to pay tuition. But we want to know that's, that it's actually feasible, that there's a plan for getting it done, not, okay, well, we're going to get into government and then we're going to figure out how to make this thing that we've talked up work. Um, and I think that one thing the NDP could do is is borrow more heavily from things that have successfully worked in other uh, countries and other jurisdictions. So, if, you know, for example, if you want to have two-year paternity leave, talk about how it's worked in Denmark and Sweden, talk about how we'd make that work in Canada, show, yes, it would cost X dollars, but here's what it would save. Like you can show all of these things, all of these grand ideas are going to cost money. But if you can show people where the savings are going to come to pay for those things, then I think you know, the idea of actually governing becomes more uh, realistic. And I think the fact that they've never been a party that has governed at the federal level means that they have to show their work even more so than other parties yeah. because people do see them as untested and untried. And if they live in Ontario, they probably have a long memory to the one time we had an untested NDP government in power. didn't go so well. Uh, there's very mixed feelings about Rachel Notley in Alberta. I actually think she's doing a pretty solid job in a lot of the criticism around her is sort of sexism based. And then, of course, the environment. But that's a topic for another day. <laughs> I think the only thing that really stood out between these candidates is whether they see themselves as a party that needs to chase the center and compete with the liberals on their turf, or if they want to go back to the sort of truly progressive protest party of the NDP. And for me, the only candidate who really seemed ready to go there was Nikki Ashton. Yeah. And did you notice how all four of them are strikingly different? And I think that was actually quite refreshing for me interviewing and, and listening to these interviews. They're all, all four of them are, are wildly different. You know, Nikki's the the young uh, millennial favored sort of feminist go getter who who's going to change the world with her ideas. Jagmeet, uh, again, more centrist and and kind of trying to appeal to the that wide base. Charlie Angus taking the tie off, rolling up his white shirt to get his hands dirty, and Guy Caron being the policy guy who uh, I would probably most likely trust with my bank account, it struck me that th that's actually pretty cool for a leadership race to have candidates that are so different. And it's nice because no matter who wins, you can, si you can see the role that each of the other three could possibly play in a cabinet um, or in a, in a different position of leadership. So a very interesting sort of complementary foursome. And so before we dig into the interviews themselves, just a quick note on how the voting for the NDP leadership actually works. So this is a one member, one vote process. So unlike the Conservative Party leadership we just went through, every member's vote counts equally. The Conservatives distributed them to make sure that they had regional representation. But in this case, it's basically you have a ranked ballot, you choose your candidates, and the first round of voting closes online this Sunday, October 1st at 2 p.m. If you're doing a mail-in ballot, should be sending that well before that, hopefully by the time this podcast airs, you have sent it in, and then they count them. And if one person gets more than 50% of people's first choice on the first ballot, it's over. But that's really unlikely. So then what happens is they're going to reopen the online voting. And if you want to switch around your choices, you can. And the following Sunday, they'll count again after dropping the lowest candidate. So you can either mail in your ballot and choose one, two, three, four, and stick with that. You can vote online and choose one, two, three, four, and stick with that. Or in between each round, you can change your choices 
because if whomever is dropped as the lowest person really changes your opinion, which I think is a really cool way to do voting. It's a great way to um, look at how online voting can make a more equitable process. I mean, we've heard elections commissions across the country talk about online voting and how we can use it to reform uh, the process. So I think this is really cool. I hope it works well. I have seen some people online uh, on my Facebook talking a bit about having trouble logging into the online voting. So hopefully the NDP has that all worked out until they get to the point where they're actually counting the votes. So I think that's like a quick Coles notes about how the voting works, but it's it's a ranked preferential ballot. So it could drag out through most of October. We'll be having results every Sunday. My prediction is we'll go to two ballots. That's my that's my call. We asked everybody about the leadership campaign and how they thought it had gone. This has been a really good experience for the New Democrats. Well, it's been uh, it's been really exciting, and I'm really proud of the campaign we've put forward. Would anyone ever say that the campaign is not going well? I feel like that's the only thing everyone's going to say. <laughs> so, obviously, some very differing opinions on how the campaign went. Insightful. And so then we asked them about where the NDP has come since they lost Leighton in 2011. I mean, he brought the party quite a bit closer to the center, whether they think that they need to continue that moment, how they think they can build on his work, or if they think the party has lost its way. And here's Nikki on that issue. We're running. I'm running because the NDP is at a crossroads and the country's at a crossroads. The NDP, because uh, over the last while, and we saw this particularly in the 2015 election, we lost touch with key principles. And I think also distanced ourselves from folks on the ground that are uh, involved in activism, involved in social movements uh, that share the same values that uh, that we hold dear. Uh, and, uh, and, and the fact that we need to rebuild those bridges and reconnect with our principles uh, and be proud of being a progressive party on the left. I mean, I do want to acknowledge that uh, Tom Mulcair has worked very hard in, in the work that he's done. And and uh, when we talk about Quebec, there's no question he's been instrumental in building the party there. Uh, and I would say, though, that, that we need to, at this point take stock of, of where Canada is at in very real terms and, uh, and, and really search within and, and to our to our principles, to our values as new Democrats, you know, so that we can come up with a vision, so we can develop a vision that truly responds to the challenges we're facing today. Not the kinds of challenges we faced 10 years ago or 20 years ago, but the challenges we're facing today. And I think uh, while, I mean, one one side of it is, is learning from, you know, the roots of our party, the roots of, of who we are as a movement. But another another area we should be looking at is, is the way in which progressive movements have been de- developing around the world. For example, Bernie Sanders and the work that's uh, taken place in the U.S. And that's ongoing uh, with the announcement that he made uh, uh, yesterday on, on his proposal for, for Medicare for all uh, or Jeremy Corbyn in the U.K. and the, lab- the work of the labor movement there. It's clear to me that progressive movements are are bucking the trend of the last few years where progressive parties were more centrist, were watering down policies, uh, in some cases trapped by the neoliberal approach to uh, uh, to politics and economics. Uh, and increasingly what you're hearing people say is, is uh, that's gotten us to the point where we are right now with inequality, the likes we haven't seen before, with climate change as a as a uh, uh, catastrophic reality. And uh, and we can't afford to keep going down this path. We need to change course and we need bold, progressive policies. And Charlie Angus wanted to weigh in on that. Well, I mean, we came into that election in 2015 uh, with enormous uh, wind in our sails and we blew that election. You know, we could all cry over spilt milk and say it was a 35-day election, we'd be government. But hey, um, uh, it was a very long campaign. We made a number of errors. But I think um, we need to be practical about what cost us that campaign. And I think there were two fundamental problems that weakened us. One was we became too careful. We assumed that if we didn't make any mistakes that we government would be ours. And I think that we became risk adverse. And even though we had a progressive platform, we we were just so afraid to say it. And there is a, the other element, of course, out of that is the belief that it was our time, that if we just stuck to our, our guns, we, we the government would be ours. 
And as a social democratic movement, you can never assume that it's your time. You have to make it your time, and you make it your time by fighting like hell all the time, being the underdog, and being a voice for people who have no reason to believe politicians. And I think we lost that fire in our belly that I, I remember being in 2004 when we were completely the odds against us, 06, 08, uh, and the breakthrough in 11. There was always that fire in our belly to be champions and fighters. And 2015, we just... We became, for some reason, in our minds, we became the status quo. Do you think that the drift or the perceived drift towards the center played a role in that? I I think there was a a number of shifts to the center, and one was actually organizational. And this is something I've spoken a, a lot about in the campaign. As a social democratic movement, Jack Layton helped modernize the party and make it a modern efficient political machine. And that does require a bit of centralization. But Jack knew everybody at the grassroots. When Jack died, that connection between all the incredible grassroots organizers, the teams, all the local organizing meetings that used to take place, that became further and further into the background. And we began to mimic, like other political parties, a sort of central political class who knew all the answers, had all the spin, and we star base as being... Uh, there to repeat the messages that coming out of Ottawa. I think there was a disconnect, and that disconnect hurt us. And part of this race, certainly to me, what I've heard on the ground is people want to be part of it. They want to be. They want their voices heard, and they want a social democratic party that is both social and democratic. Then we talked about dollar bills, y'all. Money, 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 money. Economy, economy. Working class, living wage, student debt, etc. We asked Jagmeet Singh about what he thought. Uh, I'm really building on the work of a lot of incredible activists in the labor movement and in progressive circles who've forwarded the 15 and fairness as uh, as a campaign around what would fairness look like. So it's not just minimum wage. I've also proposed some significant and specific proposals around how we can tackle precarious work, how we can end the exploitation of temporary job agencies at the federal level. I talked about reinstating Fair Hours and Wages Labor Act that would ensure that there's a high standard of labor protection for workers. And so I've coupled that with uh, minimum wage guarantees, but uh, my policies are are inspired by progressives and, and folks that have done a lot of work on these issues. We asked Charlie Angus to weigh in on this topic. We have to put the issue of economic precarity front and center. Um, I'm amazed when Justin Trudeau talks about the middle class. Everything Justin Trudeau does from selling arms to the Saudis to having his private fundraisers with Chinese billionaires, he says he does for the benefit of the middle class. And they always add, and those wanting to join them. Uh, I guess Justin and I grew up in a different middle class because the middle class he's talking about is gone. Uh, And it's gone because of deliberate policies that have undermined it over the years. So here's the thing. My dad joined the middle class when he was 40. They were the parent. My parents quit school and teenagers. They were the kids and minors. They went to work. When my dad was 40, he got an education. An education meant he became an economics professor, which meant we moved to Toronto. That was the middle class. Now you get an education, you come out with $100,000 in debt, uh, and what do you have? You have uh, contract work, you have temp work, you're not working in your field, or you're working for the federal government in, say, Department of Defense and getting 12 bucks an hour with your MA or your PhD. That is the new face of the, 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 the present working class, which is white collar. The number one exploiter of temp work in the country is the federal government. Uh, we have to deal with areas under federal jurisdiction. We have to start using the tools of the tax code to start to reestablish a bit of equilibrium because people are burdened down with massive levels of student debt. They're unable to live in the cities where they work, um, and they have no permanent opportunities. Over to Nikki Ashton. Yeah, so what we've said is is obviously we support the $15 minimum wage, but uh but we think we should we should be looking beyond that. That that we should be looking at a, a living wage instead. I mean, in places like Toronto or Vancouver, uh, you know, $15 an hour won't cut it given the cost of living. And uh, and so what we're saying is that we need to be yes, committed at this point, but but recognizing that uh, that we need to go a lot further uh, to track with the reality that folks are facing. 
Have you noticed the backlash to the $15 number, though? Like, there are businesses basically saying they're going to pack up and go. I think there's a, the CFIB is about ready to occupy the, uh, the grounds of Queen's Park over this. And it's, it's, you know, a couple bucks more than where we are now. And it's phased over like two years. How do you get, how do you remotely get people to that next step? You, I mean, you even have restaurants and people on the progressive side saying that this is going to cost, cost jobs if we do it too aggressively, right? Because you lose a lot of those minimum wage jobs people move towards, say, automation, more uh, robots checking out your groceries. Yeah, I mean, you know, it, it doesn't surprise me that many on the right of, of these conversations uh, are, are very uh, angry about this proposal. But what I what I would say is 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 uh, we are increasingly dealing with the rise of a, of a crisis of precarious work. And uh, and when you have not just young folks, but a disproportionate number of racialized folks, uh, immigrant uh, folks, women in this low wage economy, and, and only a, a growing number of, of, of these kinds of jobs, it diminishes everybody's well-being. You know, folks aren't able to uh, uh, to make the kinds of investments, um, you know, in homes in, in, in expanding their families, uh, or in buying just what they need. And, and so I think uh, uh, many have argued on the other side, the CCPA and others have said, look, I mean, there, there are a number of, of uh, uh, positives that come from lifting up uh, the, the minimum wage. And, uh, and what I would say is, is um, it's been said that this will affect a lot of, a lot of young people in particular. I mean, what's, what's affecting young people uh, when it comes to precarious work is not just the um, proliferation of low-wage work that's, that's out there, uh, but, uh, but more importantly, the fact that good jobs uh, that would reflect the kind of education that young people are increasingly getting are no longer around. They don't exist anymore. And and that's the reality of the kind of neoliberal politics we've seen, privatization, government cutbacks or austerity, bad trade deals. And I think the interesting thing about that topic is where you did start to see some of the ideological differences emerge between the candidates. So they all had very different approaches to guaranteed income and living and living wage and minimum wage, which is interesting ideological divide. And interesting given that we're seeing some pilot projects going on at the provincial level. We're seeing battles around the world for minimum wage right now. Seattle in the States has the $15 now. We're having minimum wage and basic income pilots in developing countries too. So it's a, it's a really cool discussion to see happening in a federal leadership race. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp, therapy online that has served over 3 million people around the world and BetterHelp is available here in Canada. A lot of people have various blocks or reasons why they don't just reach out for that help. And one thing you'll hear people say is they just don't have the time. I would like to mount a different uh, argument here, which is that if you are talking to a mental health professional, if you're, if you're chatting with somebody about your life and about your priorities, you can clear away a lot of the clutter. You can actually find yourself with more time because you have a better sense of what's important to you. Like it's an investment that can pay off even in that practical way of, of organizing your life a bit better. These are some of the advantages in, in the long run of having something like BetterHelp in your life. As the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. And because you listen to the show, you get 10% off of your first month at betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. Once again, it's betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. Let's take a moment on Commons to thank our second sponsor, the latest book by CBC journalist and co-host of As It Happens, Carol Off. The book is titled All We Leave Behind, A Reporter's Journey into the Lives of Others, and it's on bookstore shelves now. I actually genuinely loved this book, and I'm not just saying that because they were a sponsor. And it was a pleasure to have Carol Off come to the Common Studios to chat a bit about this book. She told us about going to the Afghan war in 2002 when it was just heating up and her role there with one family that would change all their lives. I was looking for somebody who could do help me with an expose we wanted to produce, which was about warlords in Afghanistan and the power and influence they had. But no one that we encountered would talk about, no one would say anything about these these really horrible men, and uh, they're, they, were, they were just ruthless. And we found Assad Aryabal, who had been a former commander in one of the parts of this one really notorious warlord's militia, and he was willing to talk to us and tell us what he knew. So it was in what we, we call in journalism, he was a get. And soon after I left, 
the warlord came after him. I looked back over my shoulder, which I rarely do, and saw that I I left a mess behind. The book is All We Leave Behind, A Reporter's Journey into the Lives of Others by Carol Off. And this is brought to you by Random House Canada. Carol, thank you so much. We talk to the candidates about the environment, something that apparently some people care about. We've got a few hurricanes that are maybe bringing this topic up. You know, some nice memes like, I can't hear climate change denial through the force of these hurricane winds. We talk to them about things like the Paris Accord targets, pipelines, and oil. Let's hear what Charlie has to say. Uh, even the government's own documents show we're not even, we're not going to meet the Paris Accord, just as we haven't met any of our international commitments. Uh, I just read this um, book, uh, The Great Derangement, about the inability of our generation to face the reality of this climate catastrophe. I think you could say in Canada we've had the great dithering and the great denial that's gone on, that we just go to Paris, we say nice things, and then we carry on. How do we solve this? Well, number one, we legislate the hard limits on greenhouse gas emissions. I was there in 2005 when Stefan Dion was the environment minister, and he had this great idea. We'd have voluntary emission guides, and industry would meet that. It's like, are you crazy? I come from mining country. They only cleaned up Sudbury, which was an environmental disaster, because they were forced to. They stopped dumping uh, toxins in lakes because it was legislated. I talk with industry all the time. They get it. I think they've been shocked they haven't been legislated. So number one, you legislate the hard limits on greenhouse gas emissions. So we start to, we, we're forced to move towards it. You establish a national carbon budget council like they have in the UK with a mandate to identify where the shortfalls are so we can start to move towards the efficiencies. And third, you need to be building this new economy now, which is why I've been the only MP to go into Alberta to meet with the energy workers, they're retraining themselves. Uh, the number one location in the world to build a solar economy is in South Central Alberta. So where the hell is the federal government uh, when we could be building this new economy and not leaving a generation of workers uh, sitting on the sidelines? Charlie, I think one of the great challenges of the left is the environmental policy conversation. And when we have that conversation in Canada, we immediately hear that we are anti-Canadian because we're against the jobs in the oil sands, that we're anti-Canadian because we want to take the livelihood uh, away from people. What kind of precarious balance is involved in provinces like Alberta and British Columbia for a federal NDP leader uh, supporting premiers in those provinces where that transition has to take place and, and that precarious balance is not just political, but it's, you know, the economy uh, suffers if we don't get this right? I, for me, you don't get environmental justice without economic justice. Um, you don't throw a generation of workers under the bus. Margaret Thatcher did that, and we see the absolute catastrophe that it caused socially in the UK, and they're still picking up the pieces. This is why we have to include uh, blue-collar and rural Canada in, in the conversation. I know many people who work up in Fort Mac and Fort St. John because our local economies have been allowed to atrophy. Uh, people can't find work in rural New Brunswick. They don't have r work in uh, rural um, Quebec and on Vancouver Island where they shut all the sawmills down and they're shipping the raw logs to, Van to, to China. Uh, people are taking the WestJet flight to Fort Mac. So we need to put this issue of economic and environmental justice together. And that's why I'm astounded that the Prime Minister is not working with the government of Rachel Notley. She's doing enormous efforts to uh, create a more environmental future, but the workers are already training themselves. We have potential to create this economy. Uh, we just can't sit back because I think the social catastrophe of just laying thousands and thousands of people off is not going to get us where we need to be. We need to be doing this hand in hand. We then ask Nikki Ashton, her thoughts. Our campaign has made very clear uh, proposal in terms of environmental justice. Uh, we've talked about the need to be much, uh, much more focused on reducing our greenhouse gas emissions. Uh, we, we've talked about the importance of federal investment on that front, and that's where we've proposed. In fact, we're the only campaign to have proposed a crown corporation called Green Canada that would direct federal investment in terms of the green transition towards a carbon-free economy. And, and the reason why we proposed a Crown Corporation is we, we believe that uh, uh, you know, public ownership is key in, in making the kinds of investments that 
that we need, uh, but also in, in taking on inequality. So instead of directing this kind of investment into the private sector, oftentimes uh, we don't know where it goes and, and uh, it certainly doesn't uh, make a difference in, in, in terms of uh, people's lives in any significant way. Uh, what we're saying, it would be a crown corporation that could make these investments, that could work with Indigenous communities, with provinces, with municipalities to build projects that, that would involve alternative energy, uh, that would involve climate change mitigation and adaptation as well. And one of the other innovative pieces that we've talked about is the need for this work to also have grassroots direction. So creating a citizens advisory committees uh, that based in different parts of the country made up of uh, Indigenous people, workers in these sectors, members of industry and climate change experts uh, that could say, you know what, we live in the BC interior. This is the reality we're facing. These are the kinds of things that uh, that we believe are, are uh, feasible and necessary in our in our communities. And so so that would that work would would happen from the grassroots up advising, obviously, work that uh, uh, that, that would be taking place, you know, in a more, I guess, uh, uh, centralized fashion through a, a crown corporation. You know, we've we've obviously talked about the need to oppose pipelines, recognizing that they don't meet uh, the uh, our commitments under the U.N. Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. They don't meet uh, the test of consent of Indigenous peoples, and they also don't meet our climate change commitments. I mean, you know, you can't build a pipeline and and, uh, and still work with the same sort of climate change targets we have on board. And so what we're saying is, is instead we need to be looking at creating jobs uh, through um, investments in, in the green economy, and a Crown Corporation would be key in, in driving that. It seemed to me the person most ready to work with provinces that are challenged with balancing environmental concerns and the economy was uh, Guy Caron. And it's, it seemed to me that he best understood the economics of transitioning to a green future. And I was really interested in what the other candidates had to say, but I'll be honest, I kind of felt like uh, the answers and the solutions fell short there for me. And it's one of those big platform problems that uh, the NDP will need to be front and center on in 2019 because many of us across the country are looking for solutions here. And uh, Guy Caron, to me, had had uh, the best platform uh, in this context. And it's such an easy platform point to just have the usual talking points on. And I think that's what's so important about trying to get specifics, because just being like, well, we have to get rid of all resource extraction or we need to stop it all eventually doesn't really answer a lot of important questions for, say, all the steelworkers who are members of the NDP or people who who still rely on these sectors for their living. Like it, It's not as simple as some of the sort of talking point answers can be when it comes to the environment. And I think that also applies to Indigenous issues. And from all parties, we hear a lot of talking points, especially this year where Canada 150 has really brought the idea to the fore of what does reconciliation look like? What is the next 150 years of Canadian-Indigenous relations going to look like? And that's another question that we asked all of the candidates. And here's Nikki. I would hope we could have a whole other podcast on that, but I, uh, in 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 lieu of that, I will say, you know, the struggle for justice, which is a key theme in our our campaign, you, you can't move forward with that without focusing or at its core on on the need for justice for Indigenous communities. Um, I will say that uh, coming from northern Manitoba, I live in in uh, Treaty 5 territory, the traditional homeland of the Nisituasi Cree Nation. Uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm in deeply inspired by the resistance and the resilience of so many Indigenous leaders, young people, activists uh, that uh, that every day are, are at the front lines of the struggle against injustice in, in, in communities. Uh, and those are the voices that, that guide me in the work that I do as an ally and as a member of parliament. And uh, and I will say that um, I saw the way in which people were hopeful about uh, Trudeau's vision in the last election because of the kinds of commitments he was making to Indigenous people. But uh, definitely the ground has shifted on a number of fronts and, and uh, uh, folks were are, are, uh, are very frustrated by the, the kinds of uh, broken promises they're seeing. I uh, In this race, I've, I've been honoured to have received the support of Romeo Saganash as well as 
Georgina Jolibois. Uh, both are Indigenous uh, NDP MPs. And of course, Romeo has been a champion of the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. So if we're going to talk about the next 150 years, we need to adopt and implement UNDRIP. Uh, it is foundational. It's it's a it's a legal, uh, not only a legal document, it's a living uh, document that, that can guide our work uh, towards decolonization, towards achieving justice. And uh, and I believe that uh, the NDP is, is well-placed politically to do that. But without question, that work needs to be done in solidarity with Indigenous peoples, guided by Indigenous peoples. And uh, and I will say that uh, that there are so many that are leading the way. Uh, we just have to listen and, and, and be there. Here's what Jagmeet Singh had to say. Well, it's really understanding our federalist nature as a nation. We are a federalist country. And that means we're comprised of provinces, territories, and nations. And to really understand that, that means that every partner, or every component of this relationship, of this, of this structure, has to be treated with the respect and dignity they deserve. And one of the key partners in this structure that's not, that a particular partner that's not receiving justice are the nations that make up the indigenous people. So those nations have to be treated as nations. Things like UNDRIP, when we talk about UNDRIP, it's got to come from a place knowing that we respect the rights of Indigenous people as nations. And if there's a fellow nation, you have to have the consent of a nation to be able to do something on on that land. The other key piece for me, I think it's so important, would be um, acknowledging or addressing or confronting the legacy of genocide, direct and cultural, that's been perpetrated against Indigenous people in Canada. It's a legacy that we have to confront. And it's not that we have to be bogged down by it, but we have to confront it. And then moving forward, when we address reconciliation, we do it through the lens of there's a significant injustice that we have a responsibility to to rectify. And that means making sure we protect Indigenous languages and not just have legislation, but also have funding. It means that Indigenous children should get equal funding at a basic minimum. It means that we need to in, uh, ensure that there's clean drinking water, that there's access to education and other opportunities, that there is a support of the way of life, the language, the culture, so that we can revive an important element of, of the Federalist Nation of Canada. And this is Charlie Angus with his very Charlie Angus-like thoughts. The primary relationship in this country remains the people who came to this country, the settler population, and Indigenous First People. In the last 150 years, it has been abusive, an abusive, toxic relationship. We can't change what was done in the past. We can change what is being done now because 150 years from now, it will still be the primary relationship. On the positive I think this young generation, uh, Indigenous, non-Indigenous, are moving ahead in ways that my generation probably couldn't even have imagined. I see young leaders of change making it happen, uh, and that is an extraordinary thing. But the fact is, is that the bill for Canada's cultural genocide has come due. It cannot be talked away. It cannot be done incrementally. That bill has come due, and it's come due with this young generation of Indigenous youth. So we have a prime minister in federal court trying to quash an order by a human rights tribunal over being found guilty of systemic racist discrimination. I don't even, I don't even have the words for how, I, I don't even know what to say that that could be okay in 2017. It has to stop. We are losing children every single day in our country because of systemic negligence and malpractice. And I'm always told, oh, well, you know, the minister's a nice person. Yeah, that's the story of Canada. Nice people have done really terrible things because they will put up with the system, which is Indian affairs, which is a system of colonial destruction of a people, and that department has to be dismantled. No ifs, ends, or buts. There's no amount of paint you can put on the walls, no number of ministers you can put in that position. That institution has to be dismantled in a coherent manner so that the responsibility for the development of communities is returned to the communities themselves. I think Nikki Ashton's response to the questions about Indigenous relations going forward is the most grounded because because of who she represents and and she's been working with um, indigenous people in northern Manitoba uh, for a long time and I think she really does understand the issues and her whole justice platform is grounded in the idea and sensibility that uh, this country can and should do better 
and uh, I, I was impressed with, with Nikki Ashton. We want to take a second to thank our sponsor, Tree Canada. Get you all to visit nationaltreeday.ca slash CanadaLand to enter this super awesome sounding contest, yeah, National dance. Tree Day Contest. I just spent a month in Banff, and I can tell you, you definitely want to win this contest. Banff is a magical land full of elves and deer and horny Australians and beautiful mountains, gorgeous and, and lakes and trees, and trees. And most importantly, trees. trees. So they will plant a tree on your behalf for free. Pretty important, especially if we stay a resource based economy, we kind of need to replace those trees and you will be entered for a chance to win a trip to this magical place. If you enter, you will be helping Tree Canada work towards their goal of planting 10,000 trees for National Tree Day this September 27th. Again, they're going to plant a tree on your behalf for free. You get to do good, basically, by going to a website. The grand prize includes airfare courtesy of Air Canada, ground transportation between Calgary and Banff, a beautiful drive, and a stay in the world-famous Fairmont Banff Springs Hotel. That's super fancy. It's super fancy. We walked there, and it is a very, very fancy place. The contest is proudly sponsored by Air Canada, Fairmont Banff Springs, and U-Haul. What is what is Tree Canada? You're probably asking, right? Yeah, I'm really... so. I hadn't heard much about Tree Canada before this at all. It's actually Tree Canada's 25th anniversary, and it is Canada's leading national tree planting charity. They're dedicated to improving the lives of Canadians by planting and nurturing trees. Since 1992, they've planted more than 80 million trees, greened more than 600 schoolyards, helped restore places hit by natural disasters, and brought together urban forestry experts greening cities all across Canada. You can get involved or learn more about them at treecanada.ca. And remember to enter the contest and you can stay at that super fancy hotel in Banff at nationaltreeday.ca slash CanadaLand. Okay, so somewhere I was not super impressed with Nikki Ashton, though, and still am not, is her answer on the whole question of Quebec. Ryan? Yeah, Quebec. This is where many of the interviews got frustrating for me and were challenging, I think, for the candidates because Quebec is the elephant in the room for the NDP. The loss in 2015, a lot of people point to Quebec. Um, Can they come back from that loss in 2015? Uh, The orange wave that we are all familiar with uh, and has become a talking point for the NDP is a result of Quebec. And, you know, uh, there's a lot hanging on this one province. And we asked all of the candidates about their plan for Quebec. Well, I would say people talk a lot about a Quebec and I think Quebec is incredibly important. I think it's a province that is the, one of the most open to new democratic messages of social justice, tackling inequality, fighting against climate change. It's a province that's very receptive to these, these ideas. It's one of the most progressive provinces in terms of childcare and tuition fees in the country. And people talk about the importance, but they just talk about it. What we've done is on the ground, we've signed up more members than any other campaign. A third of the current NDP membership in Quebec are members that we signed up. So it's a province that not only do I talk about its importance, but I've backed it up with organizing. Some of your opponents have been uh, a little bit softer on this Quebec issue of Bill 62, which could limit uh, religious symbols when accessing public services. Some of them have come out and clarified and felt that they were misrepresented in their in their comments, but they still seem to talk a little bit about Quebec's special relationship with the idea of uh, sovereignty and religious symbols. How have you reacted to that? Because I I think some of your opponents comments have been a little bit wishy washy at times. I've been very clear. We can't pick and choose when it comes to human rights. The topic of human rights, the discussion of human rights hasn't always been comfortable or popular. When women fought for the right to vote, the right to choose, when the LGTB community fought for their rights of equality and marriage equality, when we challenge issues around racial discrimination and systemic discrimination, these topics are uncomfortable. They are sometimes unpopular, but we know it's the right thing to do. So for me, there's really no way around it. No one should face discrimination based on any grounds that are that are um, inherent to that human being, to that individual. And uh, whether it's race, gender, sexuality, religious beliefs, political viewpoints, no one should face discrimination. And I've said unequivocally, we need to 
defend the rights of all people. So with respect to Bill 62, it's something that I'm very confident the existing very strong charter of rights and freedoms that exists in Quebec is going to provide a tool for people to challenge it if it is passed. We know that uh, the legislation that exists in Quebec is actually very clear on what grounds uh, should not be discriminated on. People should not be discriminated on a, a wide variety of grounds that are covered by the Charter in Quebec. And I'm confident that the law will not, uh, that the, the existing framework will ensure that people's rights are protected. And I've been unequivocal about that. Over to Charlie. Quebec is has enormous potential for the NDP. Um, I was there with Jack when we had single-digit numbers all across Quebec. We had a very little organization. And Jack, with the progressive community in, in Quebec, built a strong relationship. It excited people that thought, saw change was coming. I think our mistake in 2015 was that, again, we centralized everything and we assumed, we just took for granted that Quebec was ours. And you never take that for granted with as a when you're a, a social democratic party. And we didn't have an exciting offer for Quebec. I remember a Quebec activist saying to me after the election, yeah, uh, we were feeling the ground shift and we were saying, what's the vision for Quebec? And the party was saying, oh, we'll take two points off your credit card. Um, that's not gonna inspire people to come out. I, I see uh, our future in Quebec for me is job one. As leader, I will be in Quebec uh, all the time doing what Jack did, which was building that relationship, building that sense of trust with the Quebec people and particularly reinvigorating the, the progressive movement so that their points of view are actually heard as we're developing policy for Quebec. Charlie, um, Quebec, as you just stated, uh, uh, you know, is a very, very uh, important uh, province uh, to the NDP. But what are what are a couple of the specific challenges around you know Bill Bill sixty two and and your stance on Bill sixty two and where where the challenge lies between you know the Quebec Charter and the Canadian Charter as it pertains to this conversation? Um, it's been a difficult conversation outside of Quebec and something that I don't think the rest of Canada really understands the nuance of that conversation. Has that been challenging for you uh, in this uh, this leadership campaign? to have your message clear on where you stand on Bill 62? Well, I, I think um, coming from a region that is heavily francophone and on the Quebec border, I'm, I think I've had more of a sensitivity to the Quebec issue, which is the Quiet Revolution was a, a, a major revolution in Quebec in terms of getting to, to push for a secular society is a fundamental progressive value in Quebec because they were under the thumb of the church. And I, I always point out, I'm one of the only uh, elected members of parliament probably in the last hundred years who was threatened with excommunication by the Catholic Church. And when that happened, uh, and I was being denounced from the pulpit and my family certainly felt it, my relatives felt it, it was the Francophone community who came out in droves to support me uh, because they said they did not want that role of of religion affecting secular society. In terms of the the bill that's before Quebec right now, I've certainly followed very closely the Bouchard-Taylor Commission. There were all manner of points of views brought forward, some very progressive, some very regressive. Um, this bill right now is before the Quebec legislature. It's about the delivery of services, services that are under the Quebec provincial jurisdiction, about services to people in Quebec. So I'm going to see how this bill plays out because this is a Quebec question. The idea that somehow a federal MP uh, from another jurisdiction is going to tell Quebec how to vote, I think is, is that is not how our system works. If there's a problem in terms of individual rights and the balance of individual rights, Quebec has two bulwarks. One is the Quebec Bill of Rights, which is very strong, and they have the charter. And if, and if these are not compliant with those rights, uh, a Quebec citizen... Uh, we'll be able to take that to court to challenge it. And that's the position I've always taken. I don't, personally, I don't like trust politicians to tell women how to dress. I've never uh, felt any confidence in politicians. But I also believe if there's problems with the bill, it's going to be settled in court, not by a federal politician, because that is how the Canadian system works. Here's what Nikki Ashton had to say. 
Uh, we also have to do the work of, of rebuilding in Quebec. And, you know, our campaign has, has been very strong, I would say, on all of these uh, fronts. And, and, uh, and I just want to say that, you know, in terms of Quebec, you know, we, we can't afford to lose the ground that we've built there. Uh, first and foremost, we need a fully bilingual leader. I'm, I'm proud to be bilingual. And we need to be able to resonate with uh, the so many progressive activists that exist in that province. There's obviously a debate going on in that province right now about Bill 62 that critics say could limit, say, a woman wearing a NECOB's ability to board a bus or access other public services. I think your position on this has been um, a a little bit unclear at times. Uh, At the end of the day, is it not a woman's right in Canada to wear whatever she chooses in public, uh, especially on something as essential as public services like a bus? Absolutely. And I fully support a woman's right to choose uh, on all fronts, in- including what uh, what she wears. Uh, I will say it was disappointing to see the way in which a media outlet uh, uh, misrepresented our position on this issue early on. Uh, I've been very clear, you know, I'm a longtime feminist uh, activist, very involved in feminist issues, uh, that nobody should have the right to tell a woman or anyone what they should be wearing. And, uh, and that we should also, uh, without question, uphold the Charter of Rights and Freedom. I will say that Bill 62 is not in its final form as of yet. It's still in negotiations in the National Assembly in Quebec. Uh, And, uh, you know, and there are many involved in anti-racism activism, uh, anti-Islamophobia activism uh, that are key parts of of this discussion. You know, folks in Quebec that feel strongly about these issues. And I think we we need to trust that that there are many that are are putting forward a very progressive view of this this debate. You know, and I I think, uh, you know, it's also important to to recognize that uh, folks in Quebec also have their own provincial charter that actually preceded the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. Uh, and, uh, and and I would hope that uh, that both their charter and, and obviously the federal charter are respected uh, once this bill reaches its final form. I don't know about, about you two, but I felt like... I felt like we didn't get a strong answer on Bill 62 from anybody, that there was a lot of uh, sort of wait and see. As I think Jugmeat had a good answer on that. I think of all of them, he was the strongest. He said that we have to have the same values across the country. I think as, as someone who does wear a religious symbol that's so visible throughout his day-to-day life, I think that really informed his answer. And I found his answer on Bill 62, for me as a federalist, uh, very strong and still respectful of the unique structure of Quebec law, because of course, he is a lawyer. So he did understand that as well. And so for anyone who can't remember, Bill 62 is this piece of really vague uh, legislation before the National Assembly in Quebec that theoretically could make it impossible to access public services when you're wearing an overt religious symbol. Apparently, this is about Quebec secularism. Let's remember a cross still hangs in the National (laughs) Assembly. So it's certain kinds of religion. And the big questions that a lot of the Quebec ministers are not answering about this government bill is, well, what does this mean for a woman, say, wearing a kneecap? boarding a bus or a man wearing a turban going to get their driver's license renewed. And they haven't answered a lot of questions. And it all seems to be another one of these dog and pony shows set up for the fact that Quebec's about a year away from a general election. So at one point in some of our interviews, we had to drill down with the candidates into issues that were specific to them or some of their more, uh, I'll say, wonky parts of their platform. (laughs) Nikki Ashton and I got into it on her idea for crown corporations for pretty much everything, green energy, pharmacare, and the idea of postal banking. Yeah, so we've talked about uh, three key areas of our economy. One is the uh, banking sector, uh, recognizing that, uh, you know, the oligopoly that the big banks currently run is, is one that's extremely beneficial to them, but not to... Uh, Sorry, not so to you so want to run payments. a national party on a platform of nationalizing our banking system? No, I didn't. Uh, I didn't. I didn't. Okay, I just want to be clear there. what you're saying there. Okay. Yeah, no, I said the banking sector. So we, we, what we'd be proposing is a, the creation of a postal bank, uh, which is something that, uh, obviously the Canadian Union of Postal Workers have been working on for some time. And, uh, and we believe that that would be a key way of restoring public ownership or creating, uh, inserting public ownership, pardon me, in a, uh, in a deeply profit driven, uh, like banking through the mail. Uh, no, it's uh, it's it would be a banking service 
provided through the postal bank, uh, but uh, but it has a very different model than a for-profit bank. Um, you know, there's a number of countries around the world, Japan, Denmark, that are involved in it. it it's far more accessible, right? I mean, there's postal offices uh, in every community and would run on a on a model where, uh, you know, revenues are reinvested in, in, in the postal bank rather than in CEOs' pockets. Um, so that's one sector. The other sector that we've proposed is healthcare, uh, creating a crown corporation that would be involved in uh, the distribution, purchasing and distribution of pharmaceuticals. Uh, this would be uh, in conjunction with a uh, pharmacare program, uh, recognizing that big pharma yields significant power over uh, uh, over Canadians, and and that we should uh, have a uh, a model of public ownership to ensure that Canadians aren't getting fleeced when it comes to. Uh, uh, the kind of medical uh, and, and pharmaceutical needs that we have. And then and then the other sector, as, as I mentioned before, is in the green energy sector. You know, 20 years ago, people talked about nationalizing the oil industry. What we're saying is that we need to uh, have a crown corporation uh, and a, a nationalized entity that, uh, that directs uh, the economy or the energy of the future. I don't think Nikki Ashton and I are going to agree on how much we should nationalize at any point in time. But I do think postal banking is one of those things that's a solution in search of a problem. We do have co-ops and our banking sector is quite well regulated in this country. There's a reason we weren't as hard hit as the states in the 2008 recession. Doesn't mean it can't be improved, but I don't think nationalization is the answer here. I asked Jagmeet Singh about his defense of Wapkanoo and some inappropriate statements related to uh, rape victims at a law conference. Well, I mean, it's it's really uh, pretty straightforward. I've said very clearly when asked this, as soon as it came up, I said, I believe survivors unequivocally. And I specifically, I believe Tara. Uh, we have to make sure that any survivor is able to come forward, is able to speak, and is not further victimized or, or subject to further violence because they want to share their story and they want to, and they have the full right to be able to do so. So I fully and unequivocally support and believe all survivors. And right now, Manitoba, the NDP membership have chosen a leader and we will continue to move forward. Uh, so speaking of survivors, you spoke at an event right after Mandy Gray spoke, and she had just won in court. A judge just convicted a man for raping her, and she was talking about her experience as a survivor. And you followed that with a story about how honored you were back when you were a criminal defense lawyer to get a guy acquitted from a rape charge. So my question is, did that choice of yours demonstrate the sensitivity and judgment a leader needs to have? No, I don't think it demonstrated the sensitivity uh, at all. I think that was a poor choice in terms of sensitivity. Uh, I think I was thinking too much like a lawyer and I was invited to speak as a, as a previous lawyer and that was a mistake. To me, what was important about that case was the access to justice issues. It was a racialized uh, young black man that was charged and there was issues of uh, his, his innocence in that case, but it was uh, tone deaf to the crowd, uh, inappropriate given the timing. And the issues that I wanted to raise could have been raised in another way. The case was one of my most difficult cases. Uh, and there was some significant evidence that were about identity and uh, not in any way to to challenge the actual complainant. And it was something that it was a difficult case that it, it opened my eyes up into the eyes of uh, young black people having some serious barriers to getting legal representation. But uh, absolutely, it was, uh, it was bad judgment. And I learned a lot from it. And I hope to to continue to learn anytime I'm faced with with things like this, where I can I can see how I can improve as a human being and improve as a as a leader. I was actually quite impressed with Jagmeet's answer. He apologized. A politician apologized for something, folks. Like mind blown. So he seems like a person who's not um, who realizes that you know one can make a mistake and can own it and address it and move forward. And grow and learn, which I really liked in him talking about that. And that to me was really, like you said, novel to hear a politician saying, like, I want to grow and learn more about this topic. Here's how my experience informed that talk. And he did talk about being a defense lawyer and dealing with someone who was wrongfully accused. And, you know, there are two sides to the justice system, but him realizing, you know, time and place and context matter. And it was a great answer. 
And one of the big topics that Charlie Angus has brought up time and time again is his urban agenda. He's got an agenda on homelessness, on housing, and many other topics that uh, pertain to urban life in Canada. And we had a chance to specifically talk to him about his urban agenda on his platform. In terms of our role, uh, let's talk cities, for example. I think we need to start to rethink some of the roles of the federal government. When you have an, uh, a city like Toronto, you know, one of the largest economies in Canada, and yet it tends to deal with the province, I see there's opportunities for the federal government to do direct deals with large urban municipalities on greenhouse infrastructure because cities are the front line in being able to combat climate change. But in terms of economic development, we have in rural and regional Canada, uh, regional economic development corporations. They are underfunded. They don't have the the resources they need, but the the idea is to reestablish some balance in rural regions. When we look at the inability of people to live in downtown urban centers like Vancouver and Toronto, I think we need to start looking at the, at the federal government investing in neighborhood economic development, smaller microloans, cooperatives to create an economy that is, that is sustainable at the grassroots would certainly, I think, go a long way to restoring a sense of livable cities and giving uh, this new generation of workers more autonomy uh, because what we've done is bent over backwards to, to please foreign capital year after year. And what's it gotten us? I mean, they ship the jobs to Mexico and they ship the profits off to the Cayman Islands. Uh, we need a federal government that's in there reestablishing an economic balance. Now, this is where... Again, you know, I, I kind of had trouble. We, we have to, we can talk about urban agendas and we can talk about ending homelessness and we can talk about social housing and the right to housing. But I think we do have to talk about the economics of it. And I, I couldn't help but come out of some of these bigger issues feeling like I hadn't had a meal because the economics of all of this are, are a bit frightening. And I, I, didn't, I didn't find the answers I was looking for in the interview. Yeah, I mean, he kept saying, we need to have a national housing strategy, we need to have a national housing strategy, but what the F does that national housing strategy actually look like? We hear this a lot, like, we need a strategy for X. A strategy isn't the dollars and cents and implementation and economic benefits and the initial investment. And I think the idea of having a big national plan for things always sounds good. And it's something the NDP talks about a lot, like, let's have a national strategy for... Daycare. Let's have a national strategy for trees. Like, I, I feel like if you ask the ADP, it's going to be like either nationalize it or have a national strategy for it. And I think that's the problem they fall into. And I think just constantly calling for a strategy doesn't actually help anything on the ground. Now, the one thing that I will say is that uh, about strategies is there are plenty of strategies out there. For example, the Nas- National Association of Friendship Centers has had a homeless, a national homeless homelessness strategy for decades. They've had uh, national uh, housing strategies and reports for for decades, and that's the work of the National Association of Friendship Centers, along with the PTOs and. I hope that whoever ends up sitting in this federal seat considers working with the Friendship Center movement to address some of these urban issues because it's the Friendship Centers in communities that have have the expertise that they're looking for. And I just I just felt like felt like we didn't get at least I didn't feel like I got the answer I was looking for uh, on on that question. So we're coming to the end of this marathon episode of Commons, and there's some lingering questions, of course. But let me ask, if you could vote, uh, who you might vote for and who you you think had the most well-thought-out campaign, most grounded platform, and do you think we're still going to be wondering who the leader is in two weeks? So I think that personally, I think they might get it done on two ballots. That's just my my f- sense of this, uh, which means we would know Thanksgiving weekend who the new leader is. I think that Jugmeet Singh has run a phenomenal campaign, especially as someone who wasn't known nationally before this. He's had some great moments that have helped him do so. I think his organization has been strong, very centrist, rational platform. I think Guy Caron is a technocrat, and that's a good thing in a great way. I think the NDP needs more economic sense like him. I think Charlie Angus is the veteran of the party and bringing a lot of that to bear, as well as his experience uh, working for so long 
along with remote and Indigenous communities. And I think Nikki Ashton is bringing that necessary debate about the soul of the NDP to the table and whether they should be this truly social democrat, socialist kind of party of which, it, you know, that that's their origins. But it is not a new debate within the NDP whether they should be more pragmatic and practical and chase government or whether they should be a protest party. So I think they've all played a really important role in the race. I think that the apparent front runners going into everything are Jugme and Charlie Angus. Although who knows, maybe maybe there'll be some sort of, you know, Corbin Sanders like surge behind Nikki Ashton. I could also see though people wanting to make sure the NDP is electable. And getting behind Guy Caron, like he seems like he means business, he knows policy. Who knows what happens with consensus consensus candidates? We ended up with Andrew Scheer, right? So we ended up with an orange Cheeto to the south. Like anything can happen. So I don't count anyone down and out. I need to see that first ballot. You know, one of the one of the weirdest things about this whole thing is, you know, from day to day, my kind of thoughts on who might be in the lead changes but all of my good friends that are are uh voting ndp members and some of them sort of on the inside of of some of these campaigns um in one form or another have all put their support behind nikki ashton every single one of them and some of these people have been around politics for a long time. Some of them are young-ish like me. Some of them are younger than me. And every one of them uh, have thrown their support behind Nikki Ashton, which I find, you know, absolutely enthralling. And uh, I do think it'll come down to a second ballot. Um, it'll be very interesting to see who gets dropped off the first ballot. And I think that actually determines who we will see on that second ballot because the opportunity to vote again is really fascinating. And I think we're not talking enough about people changing their vote uh, at the end of the first ballot. I think it could happen. And I think we, we could be surprised. That's your Commons episode for this week. Thank you for tuning in. I'm Hadia Rodrigue. Follow me at D Rodrique on Twitter. That's D-E-E-R-O-D-E-R-I-Q-U-E. And I'm Ashley Chinati. You can follow me on Twitter at Ashley Chinati. That's Ashley with an L-E-Y. Last name C-S-A-N-A-D-Y. And I'm Ryan McMahon. Follow me at R-M Comedy. That's R-M Comedy. Follow us on Twitter at CanadaLand Commons, CanadaLand CMNS. Check out our website at CanadaLandShow.com slash commons. And you can email us at commons at CanadaLandShow.com. Our Patreon page is patreon.com slash CanadaLand. Special thanks this week to Rohit Joseph in Vancouver and JP Davidson in Ottawa for their assistance with this week's interviews. On upcoming episodes, we're going to talk about immigration, about the energy sector, we'll take a look at municipal politics, we'll dig into NAFTA negotiations, and we'll check in with that coalition government in BC, and we'll give you a behind-the-scenes look at how state-level diplomacy really works. Folks, Commons is the most downloaded Canadian political podcast in the country, and we owe it all to you. Please do us a favor, between now and our next episode in two weeks, each of you try to convince two friends or colleagues to subscribe to the show. We'd really appreciate it. The producer of Commons is Russell Gregg. Our music is produced by Nathan Burley. If you like what we do, please support us. Because nobody is going to slap us on the back at the end of the day and say, hey, good job. I don't think I'll ever get an editorial say, wow, those NDPers, <laughs> geez, aren't they reasonable? No, uh, we never had friends like that in the media, except for Canada land. I just want to say, uh, you guys are our only friends. <laughs> <laughs>